Hello, and welcome to the Vivolution podcast. Since starting in late 2016, Vivolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by plant-based thought leaders from the Vivolution stage. Before we get into today's episode, we'd like to announce that tickets for Vivolution Festival, the UK's leading plant-powered positive change festival, are now on sale. It's back bigger than ever, and will be taking place on the 16th of November at the British Film Institute on London's South Bank. Expect a bigger lineup, more incredible food, interactive workshops, engaging panels, and lots more. Visit our website at www.vevolution.co for more information and tickets. In this panel discussion hosted by Damien Clarkson, you will learn how to raise investment for your business. From finding out exactly how to find investors, what investors are looking for in a brand, to how much you need to be earning in order to start crowdfunding. This talk was recorded at Vivolution Topics Business 2019. And um, I'm joined by three entrepreneurs I personally look up to, and they've been really at the forefront of driving the vegan movement forward in a very professional manner, I think, over the last couple of years. So um, the first person on the panel, we'll go from the left, is um, William Brightman from... Upcircle Beauty, is it? Ups- are we yeah. saying Upcircle Beauty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the full thing. Yeah. But formerly was Optia. Optia. Always a problem with that. Yeah. So he'll be talking about his investment experiences, and we've got Amber from um, Brave, Amber Fraser from Brave. Um, they make amazing snacks that um, we really enjoy, especially the new chocolate ones. Uh, and we've got Paul Brown from Bowl who are the headline sponsor of Evolution all throughout 2019, has great experience run, raising money for the company um, at quite a, quite a high level and quite um, large amounts as well. So, um, yeah, we've got a, f- a bunch of questions, and then there'll be an opportunity at the end for you to all um, ask as well, ask a few questions. Cool. So um, I'll start with you, Will. Um, so you can just tell us a bit more about your business and kind of what investment you've actually done to date. Uh, sure. Uh, so, uh, our company is Upcircle Beauty, uh, previously known as Optiat, uh, and we take ingredients that would normally be discarded, like coffee grounds, chai tea spices, uh, and we transform them into natural and sustainable skincare products. Uh, we launched uh, in April, well, January 2016, uh, we got an initial virgin startup loan, which is just under 20k, uh, and then we completed the crun- uh, crowdfunding round last January. Uh, raised £220,000. Um, we also went on Dragon's Den last year as well. Um, and yeah, we rebranded in December as UpCircle. Great. Um, Amber, do you want to talk a bit about Brave and the funding that you've done today? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm the co-founder of Brave. We make a range of roasted peas. Um, we started about 18 months ago. Uh, investment-wise, uh, we, we raised some money um, pre-revenue, which we can speak a little bit more about um, later on. Uh, and that was like a kind of an SCIS round. And then uh, we've just had a little bit of a bridge round right now uh, to kind of kick us on. We've launched in Sainsbury's and um, we're, we're growing quite quickly. Uh, so we need, a, we need a little bit of finance just now. And, um, and then we'll kick off. Uh, <laughs> I think you're always fundraising. I guess once you start fundraising, you never stop. But uh, we'll, we'll be kicking off a round of, of fundraising in the next couple months as well. Um, I started the business with my, my husband. Uh, we've been uh, vegan slash vegetarian, but mostly vegan for the last um, 10 years. 
And we started Brave uh, with the intention of getting more people interested in eating sustainable sources of protein. So um, our peas are grown, roasted, and packed within three hours of London. And uh, we have ambitions to, to grow um, both our snacking range and into different sustainable categories as well. Great. Paul, do you want to tell people about Bold for those who don't know and, your, and the fundraising that you've done with Bold today? Yeah, so I'll focus on the fundraising side of things. So we started the business getting angel investment. So I thought it'd be helpful for the audience just to make sure... Um, there's probably about six, seven different types of places you could get investment from. So friends and family, which I did a bit of that as well. Angel investment, VC, private equity, um, banks, and then obviously crowdfunding. So from a personal perspective, I'd spent 14 years working at Innocent Drinks and, and seen that business go from zero to hundreds of millions. And so I used my network of friends, family, people I'd worked with an angel investment to, to kick the business off. We did a raise of £500,000 to kick things off. Uh, we've been trading just under four years, and we've raised another £1.5 in terms of growth capital. And we'll come on to it in a bit, but um, it's always been a bit of a paradox, and I've never quite got my head around it, but the, the better you do, the more money you need. Um, and that's largely down to payment terms and cash flow and... Depends on how much detail we need to go into, but we can come on to that in a bit. Great. That's, that's really good for everyone to understand what kind of level of fundraising you guys have done so far. So what, what do you think investors are looking for? What kind of qualities are they looking for in entrepreneurs when they decide to make that, that angel investment and take a gamble on someone? Like, I'd love to know what kind of standout things you think people are looking for. So from, from a personal perspective, in my experience, the people is is the most important part of a, an angel considering to invest so absolutely uh the product and the idea has to wow but the reality is nine out of ten startups fail so the odds are pretty much stacked against us all actually it's it's uh, d don't do it if you're up for kind of a, a safe secure life um and investors know that so doesn't matter how good the idea is, they are always trying to work out whether the founder and the founding team are going to have what it takes from an attitudinal perspective to get through those really, really rocky times. So I'd advise anybody who is, who is out there looking for investment, yes, get, get your business plan down, but also absolutely get your own personal story down because that is what an investor is really, a sophisticated in investor is really going to want to understand what's going on in your head uh, and how you've dealt with challenges in your, in your prior life before becoming an entrepreneur. Great. And do you have any, anything to add to that? Um, well? Yeah, I guess a, a bit of a personal story. Um, I, we sort of knew that we wanted to, to launch Brave um, about three years before we actually managed to, <laughs> to have the wherewithal to be able to do it. Um, and so I sort of worked backwards and thought, okay, I'm going to take jobs and work in businesses where I can get as much experience as possible that would then allow me to, to leave and, and have a little bit of a good CV um, for, for getting in front of investors. And so when we started talking to investors, I think we, we called a lot upon, I mean, wh what you're showing them is, is, is complete BS most of the time. Like you're, you're laying out a plan and a vision for the future and you have a forecast and and you know, a great product to back it up. Um, but I think 
down to Paul's point, if you can call on some experience and say, this is what I did in my previous life, this is sort of the, the experience or the traction that I've seen. Um, I think for us, we started speaking to investors. Um, so we closed our, round, our first round in June 2017, and we started speaking to a particular set of investors in December, so you know, six, seven months before that. And um, at that point, we had little peas and little jars. We barely had a brand. And every single month or every single time we'd catch up, we would drip feed them the traction that we were getting. Okay, we got a listing in Planet Organic. They're going to take us. Okay, we have a listing in, in a food service business. They're going to take us. And I think just showing that traction over the six months um, combined with, I guess, some of our experience um, allowed us to kind of get that investment in prior to actually really having any orders or any revenue to show, which is, yeah. So you were really active in communicating with investors even yes. before they're giving you money. You're yes, like yeah, definitely. It's a long, it's, it's a, it's a longish process to try to get, because you're trying to wrangle people together. And uh, we have 11 investors and um, we, you know, it was, it was just a, a case of just trying to keep them, keep them updated and keep giving them positive news so that eventually they would give them, give you their money. <laughs> Did you get any investors come back to you and say, you're sending me too many emails? Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually, I think, I think it, I mean, you have to obviously use your discretion, but um, any time that something was, was good that was happening, we were in touch with them a lot anyway, so. Yeah. Great. And Will, what qualities have you, do you think are important for investors? Sure. So I guess our experience was uh, crowdfunding, which is in effect a public platform. Um, and I think one of the reasons for our success was primarily down to the story uh, about why we do what we do, how we do it, and so forth. And so for us, it was a little bit more about, uh, obviously, f first and foremost, you know, a business, but also the fact that, you know, we have a sustainable piece through the, you know, the repurposing of waste ingredients. Um, but also, I think, because it is a public platform, you know, the way that you interact with questions on the forum, the way that you answer the questions, um, uh, your passion for the product and everything else really needs to come through because people will often assess business and you as a founder based on how you respond to the question so uh, for us yeah it was really com combination of firstly having something which is kind of a little bit different to what else was out there uh, but also um, giving the confidence that if they're going to put money behind something which was relatively nascent uh, they felt that we were able to at least try to execute what we were planning to execute on okay that's interesting and so uh, before today i asked some questions on the internet um, about, um, about investment and, and basically want to get some feedback to ask you guys. So um, Lottie, who's up in Manchester, who makes vegan cheeses, um, she was asking me, how do you know when a business is investment ready? What kind of things uh, should you have set up in, within your business when you go out to raise money? Do you guys have any ideas on, on kind of a, the basics you should have checked off when you decide to go and raise money? So I think, um, I guess the first like, really important question is why do you need the cash? And what is this cash going to then deliver for your business? So uh, personally for us, we wanted to be, uh, you know, the healthy snacks market was growing and is continuing to grow. And we knew that we wanted to scale very, very quickly. So we ha had ambitions to be in a, in a supermarket within 18 months. And in order to, to do that, we needed you know, cash flow and, and, you know, to buy large amounts of packaging and all that kind of stuff. So um, that was the reason that we, we needed the money. Um, I wouldn't say that everyone needs to do that, though. And if, if I could, you know, maybe start an, a different business, um, I would possibly look at starting it slow and actually 
being able to start generating a profit and, and doing something that, you know, along the lines of what Biff has done and, and getting the business up and running. Um, so I think uh, for Lottie, it's, it's more of a question of what is the money going to deliver to her and is that going to, is that going to deliver on her vision for the business? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think for yourself being a manufacturer, obviously manufacturing a lot of products, yeah. it was kind of a necessity for that type of business because you were going to have to place big purchase orders with manufacturers? Yes, yeah, I think for us, um, you know, the MOQs or minimum order quantities were quite big um, and uh, and the, the customers, I guess, that we were talking to at the time, we needed quite some volume to be able to supply them even at the beginning. So it was, it was um, and also we, we had sort of, we had invested a, a, a fair amount of our personal um, savings into developing the brand and, you know, leaving, uh, we, we were, you know, um, had left our corporate jobs about eight, uh, eight months or nine months before. So we'd kind of kind of done the, uh, put quite a bit of our own um, blood, sweat and tears into it. And so we, we did want to be able to sort of take a little bit of a salary at the beginning um, to kind of help us in that front as well. Okay. Paul, do you have any, anything to add to this? Yeah, just thinking, turning the question on its head a little bit, that um, getting investment into the business obviously ticks the box of uh, capital, cash flow, all, all of that stuff. But getting investment in essentially is the beginning of you over time potentially losing control and losing equity in the business. So as a founder, I think got to really decide what it is that you're trying to get from the business from a personal perspective um, the vision for the business and and where I, I I think we as a team can take the business is far more important than my own personal stake so I, I've been prepared to uh, dilute quite a bit over time and I'm I'm really comfortable with that and most business books that you read say like take as little investment as possible and do it as late as possible and but I've diluted in a way that allows me to still control the stuff that I want to be in control of so there's there's red lines within uh, my business plan and within our, our business and the board and how we set things up that means essentially I, ha I can have the final say on what products we launch I can have the final say on what new countries we go into on on stuff that I, I really care about at the so same time as having the capital. So is that stuff in your shareholder agreements? Basically, you said, okay, Paul has final say on this. The, no matter how much he dilutes, he's always going to kind of... Not no matter how much I do <laughs> dilute, but up to, up to now, it's been yeah. set up in a way that's... Um, and it isn't because I'm like power hunger or anything like that. It's just that there's a level of stuff that I really care about and those decisions are more important to me than thinking, oh, I've got a much bigger slice of this cake. And the cake, as you say, it, it, it can... If you're going into supermarkets and you're not personally very well off, um, there's, a, there's a certain amount of capital that you're going to need to require to buy packaging, to buy ingredients. Stuff that we make at Bol, uh goes off within a week to 10 days, most of it. So it's been sold at our customers and I don't get paid for that for another four or five weeks. And I'll probably most of the time have to pay my suppliers after 14 days because we're still a, a small business in relative terms. So uh, you, you do those numbers and, and you need a lot of money. And I put all of the money I had into the business, but it, to deliver on the short-term growth aspirations, we needed a lot more. So I guess getting comfortable that you're going to have to dilute if you want to grow quickly. And if you're not comfortable with that, then, then grow slower. 
Yeah, and Will, do you have anything to add? You've obviously took a slightly different route to, to raise in. Yeah, so I think for us, we were always keen to delay the, the fundraise for as long as possible, um, just because I think we felt like we could start small but grow relatively quickly, but self-finance it. There, there are tools which you can use which can help you along the way, such as invoice factoring and so forth. Uh, but our hands became tied uh, because we started trading in 20 January 2016, and then uh, there's a investment scheme called Seed uh, Enterprise Investment Scheme, which means that for investors, they can, if you do go bankrupt or whatever you fail, they can earn up to, they can get back up to 70% of their investment uh, in tax rebates. I think, uh, and so we we had li limited amount of time, and we wanted to take advantage of that opportunity. So, uh, so we did go along with the crowdfunding route. Um, Virgin were quite supportive of that. They have a kind of uh, an accelerator program for that. Um, but for us, it's a slight, it's a, it's a tricky balance between getting capital when you think you need to grow and to accelerate the growth, but at the same time, the, f the longer you can go without, in, in theory, as long as you are growing, it means that you can uh, put a higher valuation on it as well. So it's, it's a tricky balance. Okay, we, we, we'll come back more to talk about the whole Crowdcube experience, I think. One other thing I had to add was, um, Ideally, when you do take investment, you're not just getting in money, you're getting in mentors and advisors mm -hmm. and, and I guess, quote unquote, smart money. So I guess um, it could be a question of, uh, do you, are you missing some kind of um, skill or, or network and could an investor uh, bring that to you? And I think that's also really, like a, probably one of the biggest reasons to take, to take investment, I'd say, as well. Yeah. Um, so Will, we'll, we'll start with you for this one. Um, Obviously, you went down the crowd crowdfunding route, Crowdcube. But did you go and find uh, a lead investor for that? And if, if so, how did you go about getting them on board? Sure. So uh, statistically, for crowdfunding, you need you need to roughly earn have about thirty percent of the. So when you go on Crowdcube, you obviously have a target that you want to try and reach. Uh, generally speaking, you want to have thirty percent already from your target, uh, from family and friends, another thirty percent from. Uh, investors that you've got, and then so when you go on to uh, onto the onto Crowdcube, you have you know a lot of the capital already uh, invested. Uh, for us, we um, there's a tool called uh, so we we did a lot of kind of pre-work, you know, six months of work before we went onto Crowdcube to get the kind of seed investors. Uh, and one of the tools that we use is called uh, LinkedIn Helper, and what it means is basically you put in the it's a kind of an app that you can use with LinkedIn, and you put in kind of what uh, role people have. So let's say you put an angel investor, you type out a kind of standard message. So, you know, this is my company, you know, we're looking to raise this much money, would you be interested in investing or listing a pitch deck? And then it will basically go through LinkedIn and it will contact those people on your behalf automatically. That, that's amazing. So was that Great like tool. a LinkedIn premium kind of feature? It's not to do with LinkedIn itself, it's kind of, it's called LinkedIn Helper. So it's built on their API. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but it's a great way of basically contacting hundreds of investors if you need to, who've got angel investor or seed investor in their title. Uh, and that's how we actually got the first couple of investors. They kind of replied, uh, we met them, had meetings and so forth. And, th and that was enough to kind of generate that initial interest. And, and did you just research that on the internet or did someone kind of come up to you and say, oh, this is tool we can use? It was as part of the, uh, the Virgin like, crowd okay. boost thing that we programmed. It was one of the things that they recommended. Um, they also do, some, there's a lot of pitch events, uh, yeah. Crowdcube do those as well, where you yeah. can pitch to kind of seed investors and that was a great way of meeting more people as well. Great, and so is it almost quite speculative the way you went, ab went about it? And yeah, I mean, it's, you, you cast a wide net and you see what you kind of catch. Um, 
and also along the way, if people do reply and you do get kind of people who are interested, you can then kind of do some more due diligence on whether they're, you know, potential investor partners. But yeah, it was it was yeah. kind of that, that hustling kind of approach. So that's great. Yeah. And Amber, I know you're a big fan of the hustle. How did you go about getting uh, your first investors involved? You know this story, don't <laughs> Do, you? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Randomly, we're, we have a mutual connection. Um, so uh, I had no I, I mean, the fact that you guys are here, you probably already know more from this panel discussion than I knew more at, the, at the, this time that I made this phone call. But basically, I called up. I'd seen that uh, this investment firm um, had helped another big snacking business um, raise some money and... Um, very sillily picked up the phone and kind of said, hey guys, um, this is who we are. Uh, we are looking to, to raise some investment. Would you guys ever be interested in, in possibly investing in us? Um, and they, they kind of laughed and said, absolutely not, never. You're way too small. This is hilarious. But um, our, our partners in the firm um, might be interested in talking to you and learning a bit more and might actually be interested in investing. And um, so we sent over our well-polished, you know, pitch deck and, and one pager and all that kind of stuff and um, actually you know took took these these partners through um, our, our proposition our experience what we we're hoping to achieve our values and um, by the end of it um, I don't think the partner knew that we were even raising money and so he's like sorry are you guys raising some money and we're like yes yes we are and they're like this is well, this is fantastic do you do you want some help with it we're like absolutely yes we do please so um, that was that was just a complete stroke of luck. Um, we don't come from family money. We didn't have any friends that had any money. And um, it was from there that we sort of got uh, our, they were sort of our lead investors. And from there, they introduced us to a load of really um, exciting that, investors. That was kind of unlikely because that firm you're talking about, they specialize in selling yes, food yes. and beverage businesses, basically. That's, yes. and, <laughs> and they, so it, was a it was a stroke of luck, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think that's Im that's important, you know. I think yeah. I think Biff talked about it. you've got to be lucky as well yes. as like working really hard to kind of for sure. Get the and I think I think what Biff said earlier about um, speaking to everybody and then if it's a no, and this is this goes for finding manufacturing partners. This goes for a lot of networking in general is speaking to as many people as you can and asking them if you can't help, can you introduce me to three other people that might be able to? And that's how we found our investors. Our box suppliers, our peas suppliers, our seasoning suppliers, everyone that we work with has been found through just asking that question, who else? Because the, the, most of the time, people are more than happy to help you out and introduce you to people. Yeah, and, and Paul, um, how did you go about building, because you've got several investors, including Jam Jar Investments, how did you go about onboarding the investors that you've, you've got for Bowl? So mine was a little bit more targeted, but I'd spent 14 years hustling. So <laughs> 14 years I, building networks. Yeah, well I... <laughs> I tried to start a version of Bowl when I was 21 and got half the funding that I needed and personally had no, no cash. And, and that's, uh, it led me to, to, the, to the doors of Innocent Drinks when it was a startup and, and got a job there. My intention was to work at Innocent for a couple of years and, and then do my own food thing. Actually, as I say, I, I stayed there for 14 years. So at the end of that 14-year tenureship, I'd built up a, a network of people in the industry who I had a lot of respect for and I knew themselves had become um, pretty successful. So I, uh, I, I targeted those people specifically. So Rich, Adam and John, the original Innocent Founders, uh, I've started an investment for firm called Jam Jar Investment. So I definitely want for anybody uh, who's thinking of starting a food and drink business to, to target for, for cash. 
because they bring a wealth of expertise and are incredible people. Uh, and then over and above that, I just, uh, we've got over 20 investors from Ball, and I completely agree with what you just said there about, I've, I've gone to every single investor, and it's not about just them investing and, and getting the benefits of that. They essentially work work for Ball. So one of them's a recruiter, so he does all the talent management. One of them's a qualified very famous nutritionist, so he does all of all of all of that work. One of them's an actor, and so when we're sending out uh, samples, he just sends it to his famous friends. Like there's just various elements, and hustle is a great word. Like you've got to hustle, and you've got to work your investors as hard as possible. They they will, as Rich said at the last event, an investor will will definitely overpromise what they're going to do and under deliver regularly. But it's your job as a founder to make them graft and make them dance for their dinner. Great, I can agree more. <laughs> I'm glad none of my investors are here and yeah. probably won't watch this. Well, like, actually, we've got a surprise uh, <laughs> guest. <laughs> Coming, Rich. <laughs> um, okay, so that network. How do you go about building network? I get people come to me all the time and they're like, Damien, I need to find some investors. Where do I, where do I find them? So obviously, say, come to Feevolution. That's the first thing. But where, where else can you go to find potential investors for your business? Uh, I kind of, the, the words that spring to my mind there are just don't be an asshole, uh, which is not helpful, <laughs> but I, I'd ne I'd, I'd never really, I've never thought of it in that way. So as I say, my journey was just to work as hard as possible in the jobs that I had and, and meet loads of cool people. And then when it comes no one likes asking for money. Well, I don't know anyone that does. It's not that enjoyable. But as an entrepreneur trying to start a business, get, you need to get comfortable with that. And fundamentally, if you're asking for money off someone, they're then going to have leverage. And I also don't like people having leverage over me. So <laughs> I kind of go to people that I like and trust and would rather they invest in the business. So um, I, I didn't have any smart ideas like the LinkedIn thing. I just, I just, so my network is just organically built. And I, uh, I have no institutional investment. I'd rather have as, I'd rather not have any institutional investment as long as possible. If you get any VC investment, they'll want to sell your business within three years. Um, they'll want control of your business. Um, so it depends on what kind of vibe that you want. My vibe is definitely having people involved that give a shit as much as me and are there when I need them. And that so is just a natural network that I've built up over time. So it's very much from your community, your community of people who love food and that is what you're working in at Instant and... It's a much better way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> community. <laughs> um, Amber, do you have any, any thoughts on um, how do you build networks? Obviously you're, you, you cold called your first investors. Yeah. So how are you going about building the new kind of intake of investors working Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a bit of a cheeky one, but um, on Companies House, uh, you can see uh, a lot of the times who uh, people have, uh, sorry, if you look at a company, you can actually see who their investors are. Um, so I did that <laughs> at the beginning, um, checked out who some of the, you know, if I, if I looked at seven to 10 companies that I knew had gotten investment and saw that an investor invested in two of them, um, I would approach them on, on LinkedIn and just kind of understand that um, you've invested in these companies, would love to grab a coffee with you to, to pick your brains on a few things. I would never ask for money over that message, but it's just asking for a coffee just to, to you know, talk a little bit about what you're trying to achieve and see if you have any, any you know, um, any advice, basically. Asking for advice is a lot easier than asking for money, even though 
when you're asking for advice, you're really asking for money at the same time anyways. Um, so that that's a little um, sneaky trick. Um, and then, yeah, I think just, just using... So one of these things, um, uh, you never really know who's actually interested in investing. So I had um, my favorite recruiter when I was working at my um, previous uh, company. He would he never tried to recruit me out of there, but he was always there to for me to bounce ideas off of and say, oh, are they paying me enough for this new role? Is this new role suit me well enough? And um, when I finally left that that corporate world, that co corporate role, um, I met up with him and sort of said, yeah, this is what I'm doing. We're, we're starting a peas business. This is amazing. We're so excited and shooting the shit with him and like swearing and like all this kind of stuff. And I kind of left the room. Was like, hey, listen, like if you know of anybody that is like a high net worth individual that might be interested in investing, just let me know. And he's like, actually, I might be a high net, medium net worth individual that is possibly interested in investing. So um, I didn't even think to ask him if he was interested, but I guess that goes to show that there's, there's people in your network that, you, that might be interested. So just chat to everyone that you know and start, start there, I think. Uh, and Will, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, uh, for crowdfunding, um, there's lots of events where you can go for free and pitch your business and uh, all kinds of, there's one called Sustainable Ventures, there's lots of different events where you can go and you know, in effect pitch your business for free to a whole host of, uh, in theory, inve interested investors. Um, so that was where we did a lot of the kind of groundwork. Uh, again, leveraging your existing network and saying to people, you know, would you be inter interested in investing? Or if not, do you know anyone who would be? Um, and then finally, one thing that you can do with the other crowdfunding platform we didn't use called Cedars is often they'll put the, the high, that the investors who have already committed investment by name in the investment list, so you can go go along that list and see if anyone, if you know a similar company is investing, and go actually look. This person's already put in fifty grand. He's, he may or may not be interested in ours, and so contacting him through LinkedIn as well. So um, there's, a, there's a couple of different ways, uh, a combination of it, leveraging your existing network, but also being kind of relatively tactical about new investors as well. Can I a natural build on that? It's there's definitely a theme with rich, successful people getting FOMO more than most <laughs> other people. So if you can get like a good investor early doors, that then helps recruit the others. So um, yeah, make them scared, very afraid. <laughs> Have any of you used AngelList and any any syndicates on AngelList or anything like that? Uh, there's one called uh, Angel Investor Network, yeah. which y you can you get a bit for free, and then the rest you get uh, you have to pay for. Uh, we didn't actually get any investors through that, but uh, it's potentially an interesting option if you're struggling for investment through the more kind of conventional routes. Um, but yeah. yeah, we didn't use that. Another tool that um, I may have looked at is Crunchbase, mm. and where you you can look up. Um, investments in, in companies, um, people self-register it on there, but it's quite a good tool to see, especially if you're looking for larger amounts of money who's, who's raised investment. Mm. Cool. Um, so let's talk about pitch decks. <laughs> um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on kind of how long a pitch deck should be, what key things should be in it? Like people sitting here who are working on their decks, yeah. what, should they, what should they include and what should they leave out? Uh, I can start with, so what we did for ours was two documents, well, th three, but, but two main ones. One is a one-pager, which is an A4 side, which is basically a, a snapshot summary of your company. So the basic financials, the team, uh, the valuation, 
uh, your, you know, why you're different, what you're kind of, in, in a summary of basically who you are and why you're trying to get investment. And then we had about 18 slides of a, uh, a pitch deck which we were doing when we were pitching live. And then a slightly longer one which had more information about financials and business plan and that kind of thing. Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily have uh, one for everyone, but rather target depending on where you are in terms of the interest funnel. So, you know, if you've got someone who you're in effect cold contacting, a one pager is probably enough to start the initial conversation. Uh, and more than likely, before they commit to investment, they're going to want a much bigger document. They might want a model, that kind of thing. So, uh, I would say, depending on who you're looking to talk target and where you are on that kind of conversation, uh, different, different kind of pitch decks are relevant, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I agreed. I think um, for us, we, we always started with the team as an introduction, um, then, you know, straight into our mission, our product, what the market looked like, our competitors, um, and then how much we're raising and what we're going to be using that for, kind of our vision over the next, you know, th one to three years. Um, we, we had a, we had a two-page um, executive summary. We couldn't quite fit it onto one page. I don't know why, so but two pages. That's impressive, one page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we fit it on to Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so we had a two-page executive summary, which was great. And then we did have two different pitch decks. We had a pitch deck that we would uh, send out as a follow-up if we had met someone and, and took them through that deck. And then we had a, a longer-form pitch deck that had basically our speech and our text written on the deck as well. So if for some reason someone wasn't able to meet us, we could send this through and they could eventually they could sort of read what we would be telling them um, anyways if we met them. Um, and then, yeah, financial plan and all that jazz as well. Anything else? Embarrassingly, I only actually learned what an elevator pitch was the other day. Uh, I thought it was like if you get in an elevator with someone, like you've got 30, 40 seconds and then you tell them, right? That's bullshit. An elevator pitch is can you get your story down in seven words or less? And apparently it started with the guy who did The Fast and the Furious. So it, it was, to his pitch was, it's like Top Gun, but with cars. And so I'd say, can you, can you nail your elevator pitch is, is a really good starting point. And I, I didn't realize what it meant, but I definitely could do that back in the day. More pictures, less words. Really make sure you know your numbers if you are not, a qualified accountant, then then make sure that you've got someone with you who can give you that advice, um, and yeah, go go big, make it as uh, as visionary as as possible. The whole cliches of aiming for the stars, landing on the moon that that's the stuff the investors want to hear. So even though it might make you feel a little bit queasy to be putting out these massive bold visions then go for it you've got to believe it can't just be complete nonsense but um and yeah ultimately the investors want to see a return so they want to see that visionary big stuff they want to invest in businesses that are going to stretch themselves they might fail but they could also achieve great things so exactly i mean the reality is the people are putting money into businesses like ours uh, if it fails they're most of them, the sophisticated investors, they, they're going to be totally fine. And there are incredible schemes like the SAIS and the EIS scheme that mean they, they, they essentially get half their money back in tax breaks anyway. So they're really not that interested unless they're going to see a big return. So 
I would encourage you to really stretch what it is that you think you can achieve. And, it, and you need to be able to justify it. So either top down or bottom up. That's why I say getting the numbers people involved. But um, don't be afraid, afraid to be bold. No, I couldn't agree more. And um, I'm going to ask some more individual questions to you all now, and then we'll go out for an audience Q&A. So I'll start with you, Will. Um, so you've like successfully raised a lot of money on Crowdcube. It was quite a big Crowdcube round. And then you obviously won BBC's Dragon's Den, which was awesome. Love watching that. <laughs> um, but I've seen a lot of people, you know, kind of criticise Dragon's Den and Shark Tank as, as what kind of deals the, the actual entrepreneurs get in, on those programmes. And like, I would love to know how has the experience been working with um, Dragons and has it all been positive or has it been negative? How, like what... And obviously, because on the show, you gave quite a big equity stake up. How much was... I can't remember how much it... Uh, it was 50 grand for 30%. Which, yeah. Which like was a tenth of what we'd raised three months or five months earlier on Crowdcube. Yeah, so it was a, a big difference. Like, mm. how has that worked out? Do you feel, feel like it's been great value? Or I'd just <laughs> well, love to know more uh, about it, really, yeah. First of all, to clarify, at this stage... Uh, well, it's, uh, kind of, it's, it's difficult. So, basically... Uh, we, we completed our crowdfunding round in March of last year uh, under Optia as a brand. Um, a revaluation which was, you know, we felt comfortable and happy with. We raised £220,000, just under 400 investors. Um, and then kind of during that process, or just after that process, we were contacted by the BBC. Uh, and they said, you know, we've seen your business. Uh, would you be interested in going on, on Dragon's Den? Um, and so we kind of faced a really difficult decision where we were going, well, hang on, A, do we necessarily need this capital? Um, but B, this is a, an enormous opportunity. Can we afford to turn it down? Um, not only the kind of the marketing in terms of being you know, on TV in front of you know, two, three million people, but also uh, the potential of getting an investment from you know, Dragon who can offer a lot more. Um, so we went through the kind of the pre-audition and then we, did the, and then we went up to film. Um, and even even you know the night before, kind of we weren't even sure really what's our aim here because you know we we don't know how long we're going to be in the den. We don't know um, how it's going to go. You know, there's a huge risk because you don't you know when you're when you're you're pitching in, in there, you, you can see a horror show as much as a success show. You know, so and if you're going in front of TV, you want to make sure that your business is portrayed uh, quite positively. So in the end, we decided that you know we wanted to obviously portray our business as best as possible um, and obviously as well you don't you're not necessarily guaranteed even by filming to actually appear on the TV so um, we went into the show we, we went into the den uh, almost three hours of filming in the end um, and in the end we had three offers uh, of which we accepted the joint offer from two of them um, and then it was difficult because a lot of the, the comments that they made negative comments uh, we were already in the process of addressing, so we were rebranding uh, as as the show was going on, and unfortunately, we couldn't present um, the new brand. And you really went shout, oh, you should see our new brand. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just still kind of ongoing, and we, we hadn't even got a name at that point, yeah. but we knew that things were going to change, and all these issues that they were raising were going to be addressed one way or the other. Um, Did you tell, tell the show before you went on that you were kind of un undergoing yeah. a rebrand? So do you feel like they may be given a bunch of notes about you and that was... No, I think... I mean, they, there's, they, there's so many shows... There's so many people that they, they film and obviously yeah. they don't have time really necessarily to go through everyone by name. But, um, but yeah, you know, 
obviously we after the show we kind of thought about it a little bit more and then it was difficult because we just had you know, just done the crowdfunding round and we knew that the show was going live in April, in August, um, but not, we couldn't tell our investors what had happened. Um, and so we, once it was filmed, uh, you know, there was a lot of back... It was, a kind of an, it was an interesting kind of balance between investors who were saying, you know, obviously, you know, the valuation is a lot lower, but, you know, we've got a drag on board and what does that mean for the future growth of the company versus, you know, why have you just raised this much money at this valuation to then accept this at a much lower valuation? Uh, and so at this stage, the, the Dragon involvement is not confirmed because we wanted to wait until we rebranded before we kind of, in effect, re-pitched yeah. to them the ones we'd already kind of gotten an offer from. Um, so, so have the terms changed then for the Dragons? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the negotiations are ongoing, shall yeah. we say. Um, we're going to wait and see how the new brand is taken up. And I think we still have enough confidence in our own ability to execute it at this stage, we didn't want to take a massive haircut on the valuation. Um, but it was an amazing experience. You know, the, the track, you see firsthand what, like, big-scale publicity can do for your brand. And Yeah, you know, what, was, what was some, some you know, of the things You know, 100,000 visitors on our site. Wow. You know, Incredible. Sales, you know, massive sales. You know, got inquiries from all over the world, that kind of thing. It was enormous. And actually, the, the retailer that we're going to launch in, in the next few months um, came off the back of that show. So... Um, there's a lot of bad benefit uh, to going on the show, but obviously at the same time, it's also a huge risk because if they pick apart your business and you don't end up with an offer or whatever, then you can you can argue that there's a more of a negative outcome publicly than the positive one. So um, for us, it was a great experience, um, but it has to be carefully managed, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think you came across great on there and obviously the massive PR bumpers of a soul uh, but it's interesting a lot of the deals outside of the den i read in shark tank they they do kind of come apart like yeah it's i think it's 50 percent of the deals yeah. agreed in the den um because you, you realize that actually it's a very contrived environment yeah. you know you're pitching and a lot of pressure you know, right you're meant to put a on you know on the spot decision in front of you know 30 or 40 <laughs> camera crew about you know a massive decision about your business and there's no real world business situation where that's going to happen so um it is a primarily a TV show, and obviously there is a business element to it, but I think you have to place your strategy in that context that it is a TV show, first and foremost. So, yeah. So what we're hearing is go on there, get the publicity, don't take the money. <laughs> okay, they do good. the terms, don't do that, but yeah, in theory. <laughs> you didn't say I said it. No. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, Paul, we'll move on to you now. So a lot of people here are definitely developing food products. It's where the big growth is happening in the vegan world. It's... And there's, there's so much potential out there. And obviously, we've seen so much of the, with the supermarkets all really getting into veganism, this veganery. So um, as an as a entrepreneur, what has been the hardest thing to kind of convince investors about with Bowl's potential? Because obviously, you're selling that big vision to them. What, what's the hardest thing to get them to believe? Probably, in, initially... So we started the business to make it easy for busy people to eat well. I don't know how many people know our journey, but at the end of year two, we just won new business of the year, the National Business Awards. 52% of the business had recipes that contained uh, meat, fish, or dairy. So uh, when I had my cowspiracy epiphany going to the investors and saying, we're going to drop all recipes with meat, fish, and dairy and essentially half the size of the business overnight, that was, that was quite a difficult thing to yeah. convince them of. Um, because 
my last comment was all about the, the, the visionary side of things and, and uh, get, having big, bold statements. And we started the business very much... I started the business very much as being the person who does a lot of traveling. I like to eat good. I cook from scratch most of the time, uh, but always have to compromise on taste, health, quality, all of that stuff. And over the, over the first few years of running the business, it became more and more apparent to me that there was, there was stuff much, much bigger at play here. And half the business that was doing plant-based was, was rooted in stuff that was just going to benefit the future of the planet and people so much more so i had to i had to make a moral decision myself that meant we probably were we had a chance that we were going to go out of business because you can't go to a retailer and say you're going to drop all these recipes and then um if they say they're going to delist you then you go back to investors and say oh you're going to change your strategy like it was it was quite a it was quite a hairy time for sure so i think um, what what does all that mean? Short answer to your question is kind of what I said at the beginning that you've got you've got to have really really strong beliefs as a founder, and you've got to know what red lines can and can't be crossed. And that was my decision to make that we were going to do it. It wasn't an investor's decision. Overnight, the business halved, and we went perilously close to going out of business. But it was a decision that I wanted on my head and it isn't something you take lightly because you've got people at the time there was 10 of us working in the business and you've got people that have like some old people you used to work with people that have left proper big companies like Unilever and L'Oreal and Red Bull and, and they come to work at this little startup and things are going great and then I suddenly decide to have an epiphany and go 100% plan based and their jobs are at risk so uh, it's kind of worked out it's working out good for us at the moment we're Gone like that. We've gone like that, and we're well, on the up a little you bit. Was, you were in the visionary space. You were looking to the future and saying, "Okay, this is a mega trend that's happening, changing the way we eat." And that was the the big sell. I guess it was the bold the bold move. Definitely, definitely. Although, I mean, we made that decision a couple of years ago, and I didn't think it was going to happen quite as quickly or radically as it has. For me, it was more reading amazing books like The Food Revolution and How Not to Die and Cowspiracy and all the stuff that I'm sure you guys have all read and watched. Yeah. So. Um, but the future, the future is plant-based. Everyone now knows that. All bigger companies, smaller companies are, are jumping on that. So I think there's a... Um, if you're going to make a strategic pivot, and that was one hell of a strategic pivot, then make sure that you're ready for investors to really probe you on whether you know what you're doing. Because there's a high probability when you're making a strategic pivot and halving the size of the business, they're going to question it. Great. Well... Uh, Amber, that kind of leads into my question for you, which was, like, when you raised the first round of funding, how, like, obviously a lot's changed since then. It was a couple of years ago. Like, how have you, how have you found things this time around with going out and speaking to investors? What are they more interested than before? Like, what's, what's, what's the vibe like with them? So, I guess firstly, I want to say, Paul, that is like such a courageous decision, and. I am in awe of you actually being able to make that decision. I think that's the best part about being um, in control, though, and running your own business is that you can make those decisions, and 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 that's such a massive that has such a massive impact on people's lives, on animals, and on everything. And I think um, for me, that is probably the most inspiring bit is that you you're you're actually the one, although you take all of the the um, you know you're the one to blame if things go wrong. At the same time, you create your own destiny and you are the one that gets to choose how sustainable you are if, if you're plant-based or not um and and all that so I, yeah anyways 
congratulations, because that's a massive, massive decision. Um, I think for us, yeah, it's it's definitely a lot easier. We have we have um, you know people reaching out now and and getting in touch and and we're going and and meeting with loads of different people because they've seen us. I think Sainsbury's has helped us a lot, um, getting the brand out there into kind of every corner of the country. Um, and um, so I think it, now for us, it's really you know we've we've proved ourselves over the first eighteen months. We've we've hit what we said we were going to hit in our business plan. We've we've brought forward some of the retailers we said we were going to hit in, in year three, we've hit in year one, which is which has been good. So we have the the confidence and the backing of our current investor group to then go and, and kind of bring some more people on board to, to take us to the next level. Um, I think the, the challenging bit right now is to kind of we've we've done well with the sort of the, the small product range that we've 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 created and now the the next step for us is figuring out what are the next actually what are the next you know, one to three years look like in terms of products, in terms of categories, in terms of team, vision, you know, what, what we're doing. And that's, um, it's always a, a real, it's, it's so important to do, but when you're running a business and when you're such a small team, um, the day-to-day -day kind of more tactful things um, take up and more executional things take up so much of your time. So uh, right now we're trying to do the more visionary things on the weekend and then do the executional, executional things during the week. I don't know if you feel the same. But um, so that's, that's sort of where we're at right now. And it's exciting, it's scary, it's hard, um, but I would definitely wouldn't change it for the world, so. Can I just say one thing quickly that's just come to mind as you're talking then, that every minute you spend trying to raise money, you're not running your business. So trying to do the money side of things, and I get this whole talk is about investment and capital and money uh but trying to do it as efficiently as possible is a really good thing to do there's a lot of founders out there that spend their whole time raising money and that is not what you set out to do so if you can be efficient then that's a good thing definitely um okay we're going to do q a in a minute but just before we do it if you could give one tool one place for everyone here in the audience to go and check out to get information on all the stuff you have to know about, like dilution, cap tables, and shareholder agreements, where would you send people? Um, so the first, the first and really, I read a couple books about fundraising, um, but there's a, a book called um, The Field Guide, Fundraising Field Guide. Um, it's free. You can download it um, on their website. It's like a donation base, but again, it's Fundraising Field Guide. Um, it's by George something or other. I can't remember his last name. Uh, it's a bit of a difficult last name. But if you are interested, come chat to me afterwards and I'll give you his, the spelling of his last name. But that kind of takes you through everything from, again, what a pitch deck should be to um, what investors are looking at to all the different kind of terminology, what's a cap table, um, what, what, what your business plan should include, all that jazz. Um, right. And then otherwise, you need to probably get a lawyer involved at some point, and they'll provide you with a lot of those docs as yeah, well. Yeah, definitely get a lawyer when it comes to <laughs> the moment. Um, got any resources you send people to? Uh, it's a tricky one, I guess, for us. Just um, one. <laughs> because, well, Crowdcube is, uh, yeah. they do a lot of the, the, the legal stuff, so um, they'll handle a lot of the, uh, you know, the shareholder agreements, that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, if you want, if you want, a, if you want a, an example pitch deck or a one pager, then uh, send me an email and I'll send you mine because that's as much as used or anything else. Great. Anywhere you send people? LinkedIn. Yeah. It's, it's nuts the amount of information. I'm guessing most of you guys watch like the Fire Festival 
oh, documentary. How, actually, no, it's amazing. <laughs> not, not for people who organise events. It's really, yeah. really scary. Do, um, <laughs> but don't worry, guys. We're not going to put you in a tent in some <laughs> island From somewhere. From sh- a Schaden perspective, just how enjoyable yeah. it was to watch. Uh, but, for example, that deck is a very... I saw yeah. last week someone it's posted it on link, LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. So it's like... I don't know, I'm not on Facebook, I don't personally use Instagram or various other, but I love LinkedIn. I just think yeah. there's so much great business information live the whole time. Yeah, and another one to add to that is Y Combinator. Um, they have tons of great stuff on there. It's very tech-focused, but um, you can just spend hours on there learning about things. Okay, well, look, big round of applause for the panel. Um, and we've got time for about... T- five or ten minutes of Q&A, so pop your hand up and we'll ask some questions. Great, thank you. That was so interesting and really relevant for me, so thank you all. Um, my question is, when you went first to Angels or even how you were doing your valuation uh, crowdfunding, how did you initially create your valuation that was relevant and what was your initial feedback from people and how did you kind of curate that to land well? 20 million pound question right there. So for us, um, we went, we're down the crowdfunding route and one of the things you can do is you can see very quickly what other companies are valuing at, at why. Uh, and if you ask for their additional documents, like their financials, you can begin to get a sense of, okay, so these companies are doing 200,000 pounds of revenue and they're looking for 2 million pounds or something like that. Uh, and you can start to benchmark that way. And that was a way that we justified our valuation as we took about eight companies who are in the FMCG space. And, uh, you know, we've got their, in effect, multiples. So you go, you know, you're raising one million pounds and you're doing 100,000 pounds of revenue this year, 300,000 pounds next year, et cetera. And you, can, and you can benchmark that way. And that was how we justified our valuation. Um, it was pretty rich, our valuation, based on, well, I'd say fair, but whatever. But because of the SEIS thing, it means that you can get a bit of a premium um, and if you're not part of that scheme. So, um, yeah, we used publicly available, basically, valuation metrics. Yeah, I think we, we sort of did the same. Uh, we, we spoke to people. I think typically on, on crowdfunding, um, sometimes evaluations can be slightly inflated. Um, so when we did try that tactic, the investors were like, oh, just bring it down a bit. Um, but essentially, we kind of, we kind of looked at what, what we need um, in terms of cash, what we were willing to give away, and that plus that equaled what our valuation was. We, we pitched high, like very high for pre-revenue, and randomly, um, I think, as people started kind of agreeing, um, it didn't fall too far down from that. Um, so I think start a little bit higher because they might they will try to, to get you down. Um, but I guess in our second round right now, we were not pushing it probably as much as some other businesses out there because we don't want to be in a situation where we, you know, we, we go out with a really high valuation in this round and then might not you know, deliver on certain things that would then lead us to a down round in the next one. So we just, you just have to be careful not to really overvalue yourself so that in a year's time, you can, again, increase your valuation. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a fine line, I think. When investors say down rounds, it's, they say... It's a disaster. Really, it's a disaster, yeah. Well, because yes. people are losing money, essentially, so... Um, Paul, any other suggestions? So if you're... I guess it's... If you're raising pre... Uh, revenue, then it's it's one type of conversation you're having because it is completely. This is what things could be like. 
uh, and then if you're already if you're already live, then hopefully you're doing it as growth capital, not as a distressed raise. So um, uh, the first one, the the, the pre-revenue, I think you've just got to be as comfortable as possible with your forecasts, and you've got to be showing that. Um, there is X hundred fridges or X hundred shops or X million people out there who would buy this product and, and do your bottom-up forecast of the scale of the business, benchmarking versus other businesses. There's so much information out there at the moment of other food and drink businesses that are raising money. It's um, If you can convince an investor that your business is going to be doing a million quid with a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of profit, in three years time and other similar businesses of that size have been raising at five times revenue then suddenly you're saying my business is is worth five million quid uh, and you're just then in a negotiation you also you shouldn't really need to justify it, it, it like it isn't a negotiation uh, you've you've got to get comfortable that it is what it is and people have the opportunity to invest or they don't you can't be getting chipped by investors the whole time so even if that means it takes a little bit longer to get the cash in, like I think you've got to be strong, which they'll respect. Because if, if you're just chipping it down the whole time, then yeah, it's not, it's not a great start for them thinking that you're strong, businessly minded. No, businessly I, I really agree with that. So, um, hands up for more questions. Thank you, that was super interesting, everyone. Um, mine is literally just an idea in my head at the moment, so I'm super early on. Um, but I, even though I am in sales and all I do all day is sell to other people, there's obviously that bit about confidence before you've got anything to show for it and you have to go in, as you say, and basically sell it. This is exactly what it's gonna be. I'm gonna hit these numbers, I'm gonna take over the world. How do you just dig up the confidence to sell something that doesn't exist yet? Start a bamboo on that one. Um, oh, I, don't, I actually, I don't know. Um, I think, I don't know where it, it comes from. I think you just, it, it is literally something that for me, at least I was thinking about for so long. I was, um, I, I was saying in another Vivolution talk, um, I was educating myself so much about the market. I was going to the British library, taking out Mintel and Nielsen reports, reading about the trends, um, seeing who was growing and who was declining. And like it, it was just so clear to me that pulse-based snacking, and if I created a range of peas, that like people would eat it. And that it, was, it was hitting on not only my personal um, ethics, but also what was going on in the market. Um, I guess because of that groundwork and because I was thinking about it for so long, I was like dead sure that if it wasn't going to be us, it was going to be someone else that was going to do it, and it was going to work. And I'm not saying it has worked, but we're, we're on the path to say that it has worked. So um, I think just finding that within yourself, doing, doing a huge amount of research and education into your sector, to your industry, to your competitors, will then give you the confidence to say, this is, this is going to be a huge product or a huge idea or a huge service. And if you don't yet have that confidence in it, then do more work, refine your product, refine your service, keep going back to the drawing board until you found that thing that you are like, this is absolutely it. Um, uh, and you're not, you're, and it's not to say that you say that every single day. I'm not, every single day I don't think, yes, 100%, this is it. Like there are some, you know, tough things along the way. But I think as a whole, on an everyday basis, that's, that's what you should be feeling about it. Where are you finding your confidence, guys? <laughs> uh, for, well, for us, we took a slightly different approach. So, 
Uh, I had the idea in January, and then I just, for us, it was really much a case of just getting out there and, and getting feedback rather than pitching something which didn't exist. So we we got a kind of a lucky break. We managed to get like a last minute uh, tiny stand at the London Coffee Festival. Uh, and this was like the most basic, most rudimentary product, but it was the best way of kind of getting out there at minimal cost, you know, a couple of hundred pounds max. Uh, and it was the best way of kind of getting that initial traction, the feedback. Uh, and along the whole way, you know, even up to the rebrand, you know, a couple of months ago, it's been a continuous process of getting something out there and improving it continuously. Uh, and if you've got the initial traction, that conversation with investors becomes a lot easier than something which hasn't even kind of gone out into market yet. And so um, for us, it was always just, you know, let's just put something out there and, and let's use that feedback to improve what we're doing. And then if we can do that at a super low cost, you know, minimum cost, in fact, then um, it's going to help us further down the line. Um, so, yeah. And Sorry. also, there's a, there's a source of the finance where you don't need to convince people necessarily. You know, we got a Virgin startup loan, which was seventeen and a half thousand pounds, and we had got some sales at that point. But you know, they're really supportive, and the interest rate is really low, and it means that you know you can you can start without having to give any of your business away. Um, it was secured against me rather than the business, but it means that you can actually start, um, and you don't have to give away any of your business at the start. So. There are alternative sources of finance as well. You just have to be confident that you're not gonna, going to fail. Otherwise, you got. I mean, if you think you're going to yeah. fail, then you probably shouldn't start in the first yeah. place, right? So. <laughs> um, Paul, do you have any? Uh, so, I mean, to start a business, you need to sacrifice a lot, and passionate people don't need to say they're passionate and investors can see that. So whatever that idea is in your head, I'd, I'd, I'd flesh it out as much as possible, do all that sensible stuff. Like, uh, we spend our whole lives selling, the whole time, don't care what job you're in. Like, uh, I've got two little kids, I'm constantly having to sell to them about the benefits of why they shouldn't do that and why he shouldn't hit his little sister, like blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, like, and you're either selling at an emotional level or you're selling at a logical level. So I'd, I'd get comfortable that your idea can be, um, you can demonstrate your idea at an emotional level and it also stacks up from a business level and the rational, the left, right side of the brain. Do you know what I mean? I'd just, I'd, I'd get it covered in all aspects, get comfortable talking about it. Um, and you get comfortable yourself. I'm, I'm guessing uh, if you're going to start a business, it means that you're either going to sacrifice. When I, I don't say it lightly. You, you sacrifice. You spend a lot less time with your friends. You spend a lot less time with your family. You spend... You, you get, you, if you're in a full-time job, you're going to earn a lot less money, probably. Um, the, it is likely to fail. Um, which is not cool, and I don't, I hate people glamorizing failure nowadays. It's like, failure sucks, and I'm gonna keep saying that every time you give me a microphone, but you can learn from your mistakes. Um, so are you prepared for shit to go wrong on all of those aspects, and you're still prepared to do it? Then, then there's your confidence, and you just need to go and tell your story. Yeah, uh, I kind of add into that. I think I would just say that not every day you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, I'm killing it. Everyone loves what I'm doing. I've got the best idea. Some days you're going to wake up and go, this idea sucks. Everyone hates it. No one likes it. Why am I even bothering? 
but you know ultimately you've got to believe in what you're doing and over over the course of the year there's going to be more of those days where you're like this rocks and it sucks and if you're finding that you're having too many days where it sucks get a different idea <laughs> i think we could do one more question maybe two my question is basically for the last 10 years, it's after the financial crisis, it's been pretty much zero interest rates. Property prices have gone infinitely high. Stock markets have gone infinitely high. And all that money has come into sort of the investment world as interest rates go down, risk increases. So my question is, are you guys scared that tomorrow all this might just go away? Because I think it's just a crazy world we live in in terms of valuations and number of companies making a profit and how easy it is to start businesses. So this, all this could finish tomorrow so is that something you guys think about and absolutely not no <laughs> yeah, bad if so, it no exactly I, w I can't think about that there's way too many other things to think about I think on an everyday basis than to think about that but um, I think on the on the on the wider scale y yes you need to make sure that your investors are behind you and that they will be there you know if you do need a, a quick amount of money because something has gone wrong um, but no I, I definitely um, yeah, I don't. I, I kind of feel like the whole vegan plant-based movement is insulated a little bit from wider financial implications because I think it's such a global mega trend yeah. of people shifting towards eating more plants, even if not completely vegan or plant-based. I, I feel like um, this is quite insulated as a sector in terms of um, risk to sort of outside macro factors. So I'm, I don't lose any sleep over it. But you're right, there is a bit of a bubble, I think. But I mean, Yeah, I mean, all I would say is that you could look at it as a positive because if you think that you know, you're running your business properly, uh, that capital which propels or props up the businesses where it's uh, growth at all costs or less of a focus on profit or whatever, then you could argue that those well-funded competitors, you know, you look at the US at some of the kind of you know, direct-to-consumer brands where they just kind of grow at whatever cost. Um, if those kind of brands begin to get less of that support, then you could argue that actually it's positive depending on how you run your own business. So, yeah. And I'd also argue necessarily that I don't think, uh, if in, you know, it's, no, it's not going to be a, a situation where you wake up the next day and all of a sudden all this investment opportunity is gone. It's going to be much more gradual. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'd get comfortable that there's certain things you can control and certain things you can't can't control Trump, you can't control Brexit, can't control so many macro things that are going on, but you're absolutely right. The world, the world is, is moving towards um, more plant-based, more convenient, more health. Um, so if, if your idea goes against some of those macro trends, then I'd, I'd question it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about suddenly all the capital's going to dry up or like, the only conscientious thing we need to do uh conscious thing we need to do to survive is is eat and so if your idea is food and drink then it's it's, it's going to be around it's got it's got legs um i think there was one more question in the middle and then i think we have to finish there yeah thanks panel that's uh, really interesting i just had a question on uh, exit strategies for you guys are private investors. I mean, are, are they kind of in it for the long run or are they kind of more in it for a quick uh, fix within sort of three to five years? And then if there's a difference between the public platforms in terms of exit strategy, so there's a question for both sides of the panel. <laughs> uh, 
you know, every, every investor wants to know there is an exit plan in place. I think it depends on how you grow, how your business kind of evolves over time. Uh, you know, we didn't, I didn't start a business to exit, but at the same time, you know, you want to know that you c if you run your business in the best possible way that it makes it attractive to someone to buy or whatever, then, then that's all you can do. And, you know, you, you don't, you're not, you know, for us anyway, unless we get, you know, VC, as you mentioned, we're not looking for someone to buy us out, but it's going to be a great compliment to how we run the business if someone approaches us and say, you know, we love what you're doing, we want to take a stake or whatever. So um, it's always important to be mindful of opportunities, but I would never say run your business uh, explicitly for an exit. Completely agree. Nothing to add. <laughs> so an investor that's putting money in is, is either going to get their money back in dividends every single year or... or some form of event in the future it doesn't need to be an exit necessarily and a financial event from from my perspective I, I joined a business as I've mentioned a couple of times it was it was um, a startup business and it, and it was it was then sold to the world's biggest brand for hundreds of millions of pounds so um, uh, the, the experience that I had there when, when we were raising money was very different to, to how the experience I've had at Boll. Uh, I've made it very clear to every single investor who's invested in Boll that there are no dividends. Every, every profit that we've, well, we've actually donated all of our profits to charity, but any, any gross margin that we make, we're investing back into the business. It isn't about um, feeding shareholders uh, and lining the pockets of shareholders at this stage. Some stage in the future, though, um, if there were to be an event, uh, and then shareholders will 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 get a chance if it's if it's popular to get their money back. But back to what I mentioned at the beginning, they have no control over that. So um, the the business has been set up and funded in a way that every pound an investor makes, they might not get that back for five, ten, fifteen years. There's no timeline where they can force. A sale and that's very different with the private investors than if you go down the institutional route because if you get VC money involved um, typically as I say that they'll want that money back within three four years so it depends what your overall objective is my m mine is not financially driven um, and my investors who've put money in are in it for the long term and they're prepared to go with some pretty maverick decisions to enable us to deliver the long-term vision that's why I come back to the point I made at the beginning, which is make sure you're getting an investor in on terms that you're comfortable with. Because otherwise, one of the main beauties of running your own business is, is to have that sense of empowerment and freedom, and suddenly it can all get turned on its head really quickly if you do the wrong deal. Yeah, get a good corporate lawyer, basically. I think that's uh, the message, and it's worth paying for, um, because you know it's your business and you need to protect that. Cool. All right. Well, look. I'll, it's always lovely to chat to all, all three of you. It's uh, it's great to do it in a nice educational setting like this. Um, so thanks to Will, Amber, Paul, and just yeah, thanks to the Roundhouse and everyone for having us here. Big round of applause. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. By doing this, you'll be helping get messages about inspirational, positive, plant-powered living into people's earbuds. Until the next time, take care, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.